G'day and welcome to episode three of Thought Club. Today's episode is a conversation I had with my good friend Barnaby Nichols. I'm not really sure how to describe Barnaby in a way that will do him justice, but if pressed, I'd say he's an author, artist, philosopher and rewilding expert. So the fact that I've already used the term rewilding, a term which I presume a lot of people don't know, brings me to the conclusion that this episode needs a little bit of a glossary leading into it. Barnaby and I use quite a few terms that are pretty uncommon, so I'd like to give a quick introduction to them so you won't necessarily need to pause the podcast and Google them. Firstly, rewilding, which I think Barnaby does a great job of defining about halfway into the podcast. Rewilding is an attempt to bring back what ancestral ways of living you can within the modern context. For example, more natural exercise, primitive skills, hunting and foraging. Early on in the podcast, we talk about exercise and mention the name Paul Check and the term Movnat. He wrote a book called Eat, Move and Be Healthy that Barnaby and I both read in our early 20s and which affected a big paradigm shift in both of us, specifically with respect to diet and exercise. Movnat, in the way that Barnaby and I talk about it, is basically the concept of natural movement, which I would define as an exercise philosophy that focuses on movement that our ancestors would have done as part of survival, but that we now consider functional or practical exercise. A quote-unquote movnat session would include things like running, jumping, throwing, and climbing, movements that our bodies are adapted to by virtue of having been the fundamental movements that contributed to our survival in pre-agricultural times. The next section of terms comes from a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, specifically levers and takers. Ishmael focused on the origin of agricultural civilization and how it came from and interacts with non-agricultural tribal or nomadic peoples. Quinn defines levers and takers fairly early in the book as a way to refer to people belonging to either of those two broad categories. The terms levers and takers comes from the phrase to take it or leave it with regards to an offer presented to someone. The offer in this case is agricultural society, the takers being the peoples that chose to take the offer and the leavers, the peoples that chose to continue living in their traditional non-agricultural ways. At the most basic in modern times, Barnaby and I use takers to refer to people who belong to civilization and leavers to refer to people that don't, like indigenous tribal people that live outside of modern society in their traditional ways. We also mentioned the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari about the history of our species and some of the terms that crop up in that book, namely sapiens and imagined order. By sapiens, we mean homo sapiens, the species that refers to modern humans. Imagined order is a term used in the book to refer to the fundamental ideas of a hierarchy or a society. An example would be the imagined order at the basis of medieval feudal society, in which people believed that the people belonging to the noble classes are more important than peasants and therefore are entitled to power over land and peasants, an idea that is bought into by both nobles and peasants. The reason Harari uses the term imagined within imagined order is that they almost always have no basis in an objective truth, but have come completely out of human imagination. Lastly, we have a few terms that are unconnected, but that I'd like to define so you're not thrown out of the flow of the podcast while you're in it. Flintstonization is a term we encountered in Chris Ryan's book, Sex at Dawn, which refers to the fallacy of projecting modern contexts back in time when looking at the peoples of history. 
An example of Flintstonization given in the book is 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes presuming that life of ancient uncivilized peoples was nasty, brutish, and short, clearly a projection backwards of the plight of uncivilized people within the 17th century English society he happened to find himself in, rather than based on anthropological evidence of ancient peoples. I accidentally misattribute the quote, nasty, brutish, and short, to the 18th century scholar Thomas Malthus in the podcast with Barnaby, for which I can only apologize. Gobekli Tepe refers to an archaeological site in southern Turkey that contains megalithic structures and is believed to date back to 10,000 BC. The dating and location of Gobekli Tepe coincides with when and where humans first adopted agriculture. Finally, there's the term Dunbar's number, which refers to the supposed limit of the number of close relationships that primates, which includes humans, can maintain. Close relationship in this case means that you know the individual, but you also know how that individual relates to all other members of the group. The number varies in different primates and manifests itself as a varying average group size for different species. The number is correlated to brain size, and for humans, the number is around 150. With that out of the way, let's get into it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Barnaby, and I hope you will too. All right, I can hear you now. How close do I have to be? Like a fist? That's what Joe Rogan says. But no, that's how I've calibrated it. As well? That is how I've calibrated it, yeah. So, let me open my book of questions. Is this a recording? It's always recording. It's always been recording. It's been recording <laughs> this since whole time. Got here. Yeah, this whole, I'm, I'm, I'm almost re- always videotaping. I've been recording this whole time. Right. You wouldn't know about it. I'm thinking of having a catchphrase or something interesting and witty to start the show. So, because it's called Thought Club, I was thinking my first question to every guest would be, so what have you been thinking about recently? It's terrible, isn't it? It's so bad. <laughs> um, it's not that bad. What have you been thinking about recently, Barnaby Nichols? You could say, what's a thought? <laughs> what's a thought? What's a thought of yours? In, in your words, what's a thought? Barnaby Nichols, hit me oh. up. What's a thought? No, just tell me what you've been thinking about recently. <clears throat> Let's talk about okay. what you did today. Because you swam in the river. Yep. You're an unconventional fellow. Yes. Why, uh, did, you, why did you swim in the river? Um, what's the point? What's the point? So of I've been thinking a lot about... Uh, I guess situations that people would have been in through in interactions with their environment for most of history uh, and most and definitely for most of prehistory. So the largest amount of time that humans have been on Earth, we would have been exposed to certain scenarios uh, that would have influenced our biology. We would have evolved to develop with these kinds of circumstances. So I guess exposure to cold would have been one. Immersion in cold water would be another. And especially as a Caucasian person, my heritage would have spent quite a lot of time being exposed to the cold. So what sort of situations would that be that you would have been exposed to cold water? Would it be fishing, swimming? Yeah, fishing, swimming in storms, uh, maybe ceremonial or religious purposes as well. Um and you think it would have caused some adaptation in us to want those particular circumstances again or maybe not cause some adaptation or well it definitely would have caused some adaptation but let's say um those situations were part of how we developed okay so i feel that just intrinsically that we would have a biological need almost okay for those kinds of scenarios we have the the living situation that we find ourselves in now is very recent Mm -hmm. 
what, 50 years less, something like that, of the sort of the modern life way that most people live uh, compared to hundreds of thousands of years of how we actually developed and lived to become this sort of being we are now. So what do you think the absence of those circumstances would do to people? What are you What are you trying to counteract by putting yourself in that situation? I'm unsure if I'm trying to... Ca- potentially, I'm trying to counteract things. Okay. Uh, but mainly for me, I feel it's sort of trying to unlock unlock or reconnect with that maybe more hmm. biological natural biological state if i can say that interesting which may which i believe also feeds into psychological spiritual emotional all of these other aspects of being human but if you were looking for things to maybe avoid probably any medical psychological social conditions that people seem to think are on the rise and probably statistically can be seen to be on the rise such as cancers lifestyle diseases diabetes mental health issues uh, like schisming families all these kinds of things right you think it'd be a lack of exposure to those circumstances this is just a new way that i've heard you express something that i think you have been doing more and more as we've known each other. Mm. But this is the first time I've heard you express it in this particular way. So yep. I guess maybe maybe the first major thing that I would consider you trying to reconnect with those circumstances might be Movnat. Yep. Would that be it? Or was there something before that? Yeah, I would think it um, was probably Movnat. Maybe a little bit the Paul Czech sort of ah, yeah, dietary yeah. approach. Because um, he, he has quite a holistic method that, you know, involves diet, uh, sleep, movement, spirituality, all those things. Uh, but Do you think was, a connection to nature was missing from his analysis? He definitely had it in there. Okay. But I think if you look at potentially his uh, training methods or even videos of him training in his facilities versus perhaps some of the Movnat guys or some of the rewilding guys, yeah, there's... a mark difference in the practice not philosophy aside or what's in the books okay um of you know paul check in a synthetic gym with like rubber mats and weights Uh, okay versus someone running through a forest or stalking an animal or so paul check is all about the natural movement but he's not actually doing it in nature so to speak is that the disconnect that you're i think paul Paul check's really uh for movement at least great for functional movement okay what does that mean though what does functional so mean? i'm not really sure it's a common term for right. me it means do, using a gym setting and gym sort of i guess approach to exercise such as your reps and your sets and right. controlled exercises etc but focusing on things like squats uh, maybe a more practical push pull lifting things maybe even throwing things or climbing things, right? Uh, which are potentially movements that are maybe more natural to a human living in a wild environment. I always, my big disagreement, I mean, not disagreement with the idea, but criticism of the idea is if you're doing this functional exercise, but you're not doing any of the functions that yeah. the exercise is for, yeah. why not just do something that isn't quote-unquote functional? Yeah. Right, and maybe your biomechanics respond better to it. You True. might have better posture or feel better, etc. But um, when I did the the Movnat 
uh, trainers certification, they made a distinction between functional and practical ah, movement. Okay, so what was so their for distinction? them that was the so practical. So you may be able to you may do functional exercises, but the practical exercise would be the actual application that someone training functionally would need it for. Right. So often, the actual activities. Yeah, the actual activity. So for functional training, often people might say. Or, you know, like cavemen need, or, you know, not just cavemen, but like people every day. Isn't that what we called it back in the day? Caveman yeah. exercise? Caveman exercise, yeah. yeah. We'd go barefoot down to the park and yeah. throw weights around and climb yeah. trees. Yeah. That's the best. The that best. Great. So climbing well, trees would be a practical exercise, wouldn't it? Yeah, whereas chin-ups would be a functional exercise. In order, a, a functional functional part of maybe something practical like climbing a tree. Yeah, it, okay. it's sort of a gym-friendly version of the actual activity. So lifting is another one that people always say, you know, you always have to lift. Okay. So functional, you may be doing deadlifts. Right. Definitely improves your strength and your ability to do it and your technique. Um, practical your would breathing. maybe be throwing your friend into the river or something. Yeah, but practical would be actually picking something up. Okay. Because very rarely in life, in a practical situation, right. is the weight you have to pick up evenly distributed around... Uh, an ergonomically sized metal bar right, yeah. at shin height. Yeah, it's usually you know, dead bodies and garbage. Squeaming, squeaming, squeaming. <laughs> squeaming. Squeaming children. Squeaming children. Uh, or like a keg, a heavy crate. You yeah. know, it's not... It's not ergonomic. That it's, would be the practical application. Do you think Polchek got it wrong? Do you think he's maybe more natural now? Because I feel like he sort of represents the start. He represents the start of a progression towards mm. "quote unquote" natural movement for you. Mm. What was the next step? That was the the Movnat yep. philosophy. After that, I guess got even more natural, yep. more practical. Yep. Do you think? Do you think Paul Check got it wrong, or do you think he's just a good introduction for people? I don't think he got it wrong. Uh, I think, I think it is a very good introduction to, for people. Especially because the intensity that he brings, he's right. a, like quite a forceful figure. Right. Um, well, who's the next step? Who did you encounter next? Because I seem to remember that I can't remember if you read Eat, Move and Be Healthy before we read that article in Men's Health because yeah, I think that's where – so that was before that. Yeah. And then that article in Men's Health specifically mentioned Movnat and that's when you really got into it. Yeah. Do you think that was the entry point for you into rewilding as well? Yeah, I would say so. I. I often went on bushwalks and went camping trips with my parents, but it wasn't there wasn't that sort of level of connection with the natural environment or practicing sort of skills to help one live in that environment or connect in some relational way to the environment. It was sort of your typical kind of, I guess, modern camping trip. Right. Um, so there was definitely an element of nature connection when I was younger, but it didn't sit super strongly. I don't remember rewilding being a thing when we lived at Dardia, but maybe I'm misremembering. Was no. Daniel Vitalis the, the first person that you encountered that was specifically about rewilding or did someone else bring you over to that side? Um, so I met a Perth-based Movnap teacher. I think I remember this person. You would go and see him once a week or something? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I, uh, my friend mentioned this guy who is also a Movnap trainer in Perth. And I wasn't really looking to meet anyone in the Movnat scene. I had sort of, I just did it for my own personal 
uh, movement practice at the time. But I thought it'd be cool to meet up and just see what they were doing. Right. Um, and this guy Steve was uh, a lot. Wait, is this? Is yeah. this okay? Yeah, Steve. Oh, the, Steve. Steve. Yeah. Uh, the wilding Steve, as I call him. Yeah. Um, was not only a certified Movnat trainer, but was way more into, I guess, this idea of rewilding um, and more. I guess ancestral skills and ancestral health. So even at that time, when when was this? This might have been maybe four years ago. No, I only met Steve about two years ago. Okay, but between reading Paul Check and after reading the Men's Health on Movnat, yeah, and meeting Steve, I read a lot of books and sort of just generally got quite interested into more, could say, indigenous or tribal styles of life. Okay. And some of the practices. So, big book would have been Ishmael. Okay. Um, that you're currently reading. That was a massive one. That was sort of the. Movnat was <clears throat> a great exercise right. practice. Uh, I already had some kind of environmental uh, consciousness or awareness or concerns. Um, but then Ishmael really sort of made it all make a lot of sense to me. Do you think it all together? Okay, that, that would that would have been my next question: is how was it brought all together by Ishmael? Because I could see how maybe rewilding the concept of rewilding would somehow consolidate all of those ideas: the idea of natural movement, the idea of foraging, the idea of hunting your own meat, the idea of connection to your place, connection to maybe even your you know your latitude and things like that. How did Ishmael tie it together? Because I can sort of see it. But it seems that it's focused less on the actual lifestyles and more about the split between levers and takers, mm-hmm. which you know people who haven't read the book won't know about. But that split conceptually in history, how did it tie it together? It was paradigm shift essentially for me. Was It totally revealed to me this totally other way of seeing the world. Okay. Uh, and potentially a way of seeing the world that, will outlast our way of seeing the world and came long before and persisted across all continents amongst all people. Right, so you're saying the lever way of seeing the world is still a continuation. I'm I'm up to the part in the book where they mention the fact that the lever way of seeing the world is actually a continuous passing down of history. So all of the rules that were learned from a previous generation passed on to the next generation, whereas the the taker culture starting from agriculture is, how did they put it, um, culturally amnesiac, cultural amnesiac, basically, mm. where every generation considers the previous generation to be... Obsolete. Obsolete, mm. right. And I think the cycle of that started early on, but I guess the argument from a taker perspective would be that that's actually true. We are progressing, whereas the lever culture is not progressing. Mm. And that although there are things wrong with the taker culture, the fact that it's constantly changing will allow it to eventually arrive at a point that is sustainable and um, egalitarian and will combine progress and happiness. Mm. And I guess maybe you don't agree with that, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but that that would be what's sold to us by mother culture. Yeah. But I also... I look at I look at the lever culture and I'm not sure how to approach it then. Sure. What did you 
when you looked at the lever culture, did you see something that you wanted to throw yourself into or did you just want to take bits from it and bring it into the taker culture? So when I first first read Ishmael and got sort of to understand this lever taker disparity or difference, uh, there was more of a kind of hopeless pining that I think quite a lot of young people can get into, this desire for something else or wishing it wasn't as it was or hoping that it could be different soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but without too much action, um, a lot of sort of research and reading and learning about lever cultures or where things went, you know, quote, uh, quote unquote, went wrong, etc. Okay. But not a lot of action, uh, except for maybe the practicing the Movnat, trying to lead a, you know, conventionally Western sustainable life. Um, but how did th- how did Ishmael force you to approach it? I mean, not force you to approach it, but how did it suggest to approach it? Because if you say, I'm guessing the effect of the book was that you looked at the lever culture as something that you wanted to jump into and understand maybe that there was some other way of looking at the world that you it hadn't previously It wasn't so much jump considered. into, okay. more a different way of seeing the world. Okay. But I didn't have, uh, I guess, a method or a practice or a way to try and jump into it. So or what to was, bring what it was the next step after Ishmael? <clears throat> Probably just waited for a few years, to be honest. Really? Okay. Sort of kept up some of my sort of, I guess, spiritual practices at the time, Movnat, try to get more into wilder foods or growing my own or being more... As I said, it was mainly the way I saw I could bring that about was living a more conventionally sustainable lifestyle. Yeah. And was the goal worldwide sustainability or was it more happiness for you or was it both? I'm just wondering where, where the urge comes from. Right. Obviously, I'm not accusing you of being selfish if it's mm. for your own happiness. Mm. But do you consider your way of living a way of living that everyone should follow? Um, not especially. Why? I don't think that everyone can have the same, I guess, to- completely cohesive worldview. So cohesive to how I sort of see it. For everyone to live exactly the same as me would be a sort of a, a conqueror's vision if you know what i mean True. i don't i don't think that it would work for everyone i guess it's less about forcing other people mm. into your worldview, mm. but more about the practices do you think that if people did more of the practices that you followed because mm. really for me your practices are pretty unconventional and i'm very open-minded mm. and i do a lot of i i'm not particularly sold on any way of living so i look at what you're doing and it never strikes me as that odd but definitely for me now the path that you're on definitely seems to be veering off more and more from what's conventional, but you mm. still happen to fit into conventional life. It's mm. just that inside your house, you're doing things that are particularly unconventional from a conventional point of view. Like even right now, you're wearing blue blocker glasses. Mm. I have the blue blocker glasses now, but that's something that's probably not on anyone's radar. Sleeping without a pillow, foraging for food. There are a lot of aspects of your life that are especially unconventional. Do you think that if more people adopted those things that they would be happier, that they would see the world better? Do you think that just those practices, not even the same worldview, but just doing those things would make them feel better? Uh, I think for that to happen, people would have to 
probably let go of quite a few things that they've become quite dependent on. Like what? Comfort okay. would be a real big one. Uh, a lot of the things I guess I enjoy doing or do, maybe not even enjoy, but the things I do, do require quite a level of discomfort. But for me, that's comforting in its own way. What's the What's the payoff? What's the reward of discomfort for you? Depends what the discomfort is. Some so examples. let's say the river example, jumping in the cold river today. Right. Um, there's a lot of various sources of research indicating or studies indicating that cold cold therapy or cold immersion therapy or different names for it, ice baths, etc., becoming kind of more popular for various reasons. Right. Some say it's better for sleep. Some say it's good for recovery for your muscles and your joints, etc., from exercise. Others say it's a biological imperative. Others say it's really good for your mitochondria. There's lots of studies that are currently indicating that cold water therapy of some kind is beneficial. Right. So that's one example. So your frame, and I guess your frame would not be looking at it from, you wouldn't be going from the research to the activity. I guess you have a more basic, when I say basic, I don't mean rudimentary. I mean more basic as in more fundamental basis for your action, being that it's something that we did or so we believe we did or if you look at people's life in northern europe or something like that would be doing on a sort of regular basis just because of the way life was because of the absence of houses and the presence of uncertainty and chaos yeah so that's the way you tie it together yeah so for me what i would normally do is think if a person or let's say people pre-civilization and especially pre-information age civilization if it was something that they did quite regularly or had to as a part of living in the environment or as a part of their ecosystem i'll generally give it a go and often it seems to be that after trying those things for a while research seems to just pop up independently saying the hunter-gatherer diet is better for X, Y, Z. Cold therapy is good for X, you know. So it's sort of... It's a good source of at least leads into yeah. what might be very good for yeah. you. Yeah. But critical to doing that is, I think Chris Ryan talks about it in Sex at Dawn, that Flintstoneization. 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 Yeah. yeah, where people project what life is like now onto all people previously, right. as if the opinions that people have now are the same thoughts that people have had throughout history. How do you overcome that Flintstonization when you look back at how you assume people lived? Because obviously we can't have perfect mm. knowledge of the way people did actually live. Mm. How do you put yourself 10, 20, 30, 100,000 years back in time on Earth and have some idea of how people lived? What's, what's your technique? Um, it's not a specific technique. I think a lot of research into this, reading you know books like Ishmael, listening to rewilding style podcasts, reading books around that. If you can find anthropological studies on existing indigenous cultures, even old reports from you know the first white settlers coming to the New World or Australia. Um, but also, I think it does require quite a significant process of you could say disassembling the culture the acculturation or the sorry the 
the conditioning and social engineering that you've undergone through your life. Right. So this comes back to individuation that you mentioned before. Is that the same thing? Is that something what I'm along into those lines? Okay. Um, that would be a part of individuation. Okay. Is break. I guess <clears throat> uncoupling the archetypes of your culture. Okay. That act upon you or influence the way you think, feel, are, etc. So that process isn't solely tied to the rewilding but it has become an integral part of it. It initially came about through, I guess, a spiritual avenue or this desire to, I guess, honestly become enlightened was the initial goal, uh, which is So the original goal was enlightenment and the process of it was deculturation, I guess. That was a a process of it. A process. And then getting into conspiracy theories, etc. When I was like a young, um, in my early 20s, that was a big part of sort of... um, just looking at historical and current global events from a different perspective. Okay. So <clears throat> it's not so much to believe the conspiracy, mm. but to get a different point of view on what is happening. Um, and from that, you might be able to either uncouple from some level of conditioning or at least make up your own mind in a... At least you have at least two points of reference on an issue as opposed to just one. It seems as though the way most people would refer to that is just critical thinking. But do you think that critical thinking coupled to some sort of cultural ideology, I don't know, invalidates the critical thinking? Because I, that's how I would put it. That's mm. how I would put it, critical thinking. Sure. So someone that is a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist I think you can be on two sides of the fence because I think there are a lot of people that are conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote, that are not critical thinkers. Yeah. They're just contrarians. Mm. So it's possible to be a contrarian without actually being a critical thinker sure. because you're not actually critically thinking about the thing that you're doing. I look at rewilding as... I don't see it as a fad. I see it as fairly holistic but I believe probably a lot of the people that are involved in something like rewilding aren't necessarily critical thinkers like you are. You've arrived at it because of a really deep level of critical thinking and critical thinking about critical thinking, metacritical thinking. How many people... Do you think that the rewilding community is maybe more critical than other communities? Maybe Movnat, maybe vegan, the vegan community, maybe some other community that you know purports to be critical of the conventional way of life but maybe if you look within the community you see a lot of sheep people that Mm -hmm. are just contrarians but not critical thinkers (laughs) yeah i um definitely think that a high level of let's say people not resisting the flow of things but perhaps trying to find a different way within that flow definitely some people resisting or even fighting against are the rewilding community seems to have a more, as you said, maybe a more holistic sense of critical thinking or like a more wide-ranging critical view um, because rewilding as a part of a part of it is, or let's say some parts of rewilding are essentially fundamentally not opposed but trying to restore certain life ways and habits and paths, etc. that do go completely against contemporary culture. Uh, And this is an interesting distinction, I think. So a lot of people are really passionate about 
let's say they might be really socialist or very capitalist or have some liberal humanist or whatever civilized path that they advocate for the rewilder often sees those all as one thing what would that be sedentary agrarian civilization right okay. takers doesn't yep. matter if you're which of those you you're are. just a type of taker you're just a type of taker yes. but below whether you're communalist or monarchist or whatever the, the core functioning of a take culture is the same. Okay. Uh, so it almost goes, let's say lots of greenies or environmental activists, etc., are going against perhaps the more wasteful or destructive side of capitalism, but they are still very much within a taker culture. They may value the progress of knowledge progress of technology all these things whereas let's say the the hardcore rewilder sees those things as the i guess the the soil that gives birth to all of these negatives that people perceive around a certain type of taker culture whereas it is actually just taker culture full stop that creates those things irrespective of the form taker culture follows Okay, I want to back up a little bit sure. and talk about how you would define rewilding because it's a term we've used quite a bit. It's a term I'm somewhat familiar with after listening to the rewild po- rewilding podcast with Daniel Vitalis, but probably not a lot of people are aware of it. How mm. would you describe it? Uh, I would say the rewilding is an attempt to bring back what... ancestral ways of living you can or are comfortable with within a mo- the modern context so whether that is just the exercise component and you might be it might be a movnat trainer that would could be part of a, a rewilding path the primitive skills guys that's becoming quite popular again that's an element of the rewilding uh, maybe some kind of health uh, dietary stuff sunlight cold water immersion all these things hunting foraging so there's multiple elements uh including things like spirituality sexual relations uh gender roles all these kinds of things that seems really broad it's extremely broad because it deals with humanity or being a human or people as opposed to diet or exercise so anything that i guess involves the way that people live, rewilding has some element in there. Do you think the movement has some sort of agenda? So you said that what it would view negatively about, let's say, someone just a greenie, mm. just a greenie, just a would, greenie, would be that they are just a person within the taker culture and they're not really fighting against the taker culture. Do you think that there's something within rewilding that is anti-taker culture? Do you think it's trying to remove those parts? Do you think that there are any, like you said, there are elements of rewilding that would like to bring back certain activities ancestral activities ways of eating ways of moving within the modern culture do you think that's a half step for it do you think that the final the final goal of rewilding is perhaps for everyone to be living a more lever-based way of living or is it trying to combine the two trying to get all of the good things out of the lever culture trying to get all of the good things out of ancestral movement ancestral eating 
but still continue on within the Taker culture? Because it seems somewhat diametrically opposed. I think it um, would definitely... It, it's a per- personal thing. Okay. Uh, I think that you would definitely come across some rewilders that, you know, have a, a personal battle or personal war against civilization in general. And then you'll have others who live your conventional take a lifestyle but you know try and get more sun time and try and eat lots of dha so is it's so there's no typical political leaning of a person who's a rewilder not that i've really come across uh political leaning i mean the concept of politics is a totally taker concept so true for the from a i guess like a deeper rewilding perspective no politics is the right politics, if if you will, or the one to follow. But yeah, I, I couldn't speak for, you know, what lean of politics the rewilding group would. Or Do you look down follow. on people like Daniel Vitalis that have sort of taken the rewilding? movement and capitalized on it or do you think that he's really doing a good thing by spreading the word because mm. i believe i believe that sir thrival website is his mm-hmm. and that's obviously the sponsor of his podcast do you think that that is doing a disservice to rewilding by commercializing it or is it just part of doing this activity within the confines of mm. our modern civilization um a bit of both i've, I've gone between the two um of like of my opinion of that thinking that if it is about rewilding, why are you making money off this with sponsorships and plugging your products, etc. Um, but Daniel Vitalis himself has addressed this a few times. He has said, brought that up. You know that you know it might seem ironic, or you know I'm aware of the irony of this. Um, <clears throat> but one thing about I guess the rewilding culture is it's kind of fundamentally about about humans being adapted to their environment. So we do still live in a you know a physical wild world. There are wild places around, they're diminishing but they're still there. So you do need an aptitude to survive in that. There are also urban environments. So if you live in an urban environment, you do need an aptitude to survive there. You need to be able to adapt to contemporary living situations and also now we're going into coming into a virtual world as well and so you may need to be able to adapt to survive in that kind of world as well but do you have to be part of those worlds in the same way that you can ordain as a monk mm. couldn't you go and join i mean not you specifically but couldn't someone that's really into rewilding or maybe against civilization vote with their feet and leave civilization and go and join a lever culture would that be possible not really okay I mean, so we basically don't have a choice is yeah what and so this is this is one of the big sort of i think like heartaches of rewilding is that there is this global confine now like what was once home is now essentially highly regulated and controlled there is for me there isn't very much option to walk away from civilization would you want to i'm not sure if at the moment i'd be able to in um, terms of you don't have the skills or you don't have to sk- attach don't have the skills and and i'm still attached to people i know definitely certain habits and even some comforts etc that i've become accustomed to 
And a really core thing around, I guess, this idea of rewilding is it's not about this individual living in the wild and being a part of nature. For all of time, humans have lived in very tight-knit groups, clan, mob, tribe, whatever it is. Uh, So that fundamentally is what I see as the greatest loss that humans have been forced to endure for the sake of progress is this lack of kinship. So I could maybe, through engaging in take a culture and making some money, maybe I could buy myself a patch of wild land somewhere or as minimally impacted land as I can find and I can go live there by myself or maybe with my family but that's not remotely the same as... Well, how many people would you need? 40. Okay. I would think. Is that unattainable? Not unattainable. Extremely hard if you think about the the level of individualization that people are essentially forced to undergo or undergo through the norms of our culture. To get 40 people to cohesively say, yes, we're going to leave all of these comforts, all of our family, all of our friends behind to live this rewilding life in the woods or the bush somewhere. And then to be able to, all of all of them to switch into deep ties of kinship with shared mythological understandings and with a, a shared relationship with each other and the landscape they live on, that's not something that you can conjure. That's something that comes from generations living on that land, raising children, supporting one another, everyone together being a part of that ecosystem, having ancestors in the earth. Those sorts of things are unattainable at the moment. At the moment? Yeah. So you think it might be attainable in the future? Maybe. If it's, I can't speak to that. If it's not attainable, what do you do? So let's say, let's assume it's not attainable. Mm. Let's assume it's not attainable. How do we, how do we minimize? No, not, not, that's, that's not the level of in, the, the, the road of inquiry I want to go down. It's more that how do we reassess our, our situation if we're not able to even go back there? If we're not able to, to get back to, any sort of lever way of life, if we have to accept the taker, is there a way that we can go as far away from it, within it, that would make it acceptable, that would get us to maybe 80% of the, the thriving that someone would have been able to get in an ancestral way of life? Is there a way, do you think? I think rewilding is the only way to maybe get a glimpse of that. Okay. Um and that would mean individuals taking on that responsibility and maybe if enough individuals in enough places, in enough taker positions of hierarchy, take that responsibility on, maybe there is some option for that to eventuate. Otherwise, I honestly think it's going to be a continually uphill struggle. Um What's, what's the biggest thing? So you, you mentioned the fact that it was the ancestral connection and kinship was maybe the biggest thing that we've lost. 
do you think do you think there's a way to get that back without any sort of rewilding obviously our culture is becoming less and less connected we've both read tribe Mm. it's really kind of profound looking at those situations where people really crave wartime and tragedy because of the connection that it brought them is there a way to build that within a conventional culture without any other aspects of rewilding obviously if we can do it in a situation of extreme emergence right if we can do it in a wartime, if we can do it in the, the situation of a catastrophe or natural disaster, we're still living within the confines of a taker culture, but somehow people are able to really band together. So one of the examples in Tribe was the uh, bombing of London mm-hmm. the, um, and the way that even mental health improved as the Germans were bombing London that's still life within a taker culture, yet they were able to spike up in terms of togetherness, in terms of these senses of kinship and improving mental health. That's not necessarily connected to rewilding, or do you think it is? It may have an, an element of it. Um, so often people have this vision of, let's say, pre-agrarian life as, what, what's the saying, like brutish and short? or that was I think that was Malthus. That said that, yeah, so that, yeah. that's a con- common view of it. Right. Uh, or that it was this struggle for survival, you know, hungry people just like forced to walk the landscape. Sort of for- anti-Flintstonization. Yeah, 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 in a way. Um, but I've sort of, from reading Tribe and all this other sort of input, I sort of call it the joys of survival. Okay. So, yes, there are hard times, there are catastrophes, there is some hunger, there is obviously danger. But that forces people to form bonds. Like if you don't look out for one another, you all die. And then beyond that, not only are you dependent on these people for survival and they upon you, but they're also, you know, your best friends, lovers, parents, grandparents, relatives, all of this stuff. So you have this, for us moderns, this imperceptible bond that we can't really, even if we are in a catastrophic scenario, we may temporarily form that mutual survival aid bond, but it's also, but it might not be like this person that has helped you so many times and you've helped them so many times and you've shared all these experiences together, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense. <clears throat> and my personal feeling is that it's linked to the size of the group. Mm. So, so I will also just add on to that it. is there is this idea that in a war or catastrophic scenario, people can find these amazing bonds and this decrease in mental health issues, etc. But it's very sort of, it is a human-centric point of view. So this kinship that I was sort of mentioning would have extended to the land and I think land is more, maybe more important than the kinship. Because really? it is from a base of land that wouldn't say is yours, but you are a part of. That's where that kinship forms, out of that land. Part of that kinship is your relationship to the land itself, the animals, the plants, the rocks, the waterways, all of all the elements of that landscape. I mean, people 
modern people will call it an ecosystem and <clears throat> some are aware of the interrelatedness of an ecosystem. Uh, like the wolves in Yellowstone is often sort of touted as an example of how affecting one part of an ecosystem will have these flow-on effects to the rest of it. But if people are a part of that ecosystem as well, that relational system, that relational flow-on, that that interrelatedness is is the errors part of the person's interaction with the other people, maybe in the group, but also the land they walk on, the animals they see and hunt, the foods they eat, the spirits they commune with, etc., the ancestors that have been there before them. Do you think that just takes time? Because I'm thinking back to specifically the time, let's say, in sapiens, in our <laughs> sapiens history, where sapiens were moving all over the world and they would have been people not necessarily displaced by others, but seeking new lands. Do you think in that interim period they were less connected? Do you think that it just takes time in a new place for you to build up a connection? What happens in that interim period? Could we treat our current period as a sort of interim period and rebuild connection to the place? What does it look like when people are really connected to a place and not connected to a place? It seems that in modern times, a really strong connection to a place we would see as negative in the sense that people become nationalistic, xenophobic, that sort of thing. But that's not necessarily connection to a place. That's connection to an idea okay. that has been laid over a place. Well, let's go back then to, let's say, ancient sapiens that were moving around. What do you think their feeling would have been? Do you think they would have come from a culture with really strong connection to a place? Why would they leave? Um, so I actually listened to a segment in Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson, I think yesterday or the day before, that kind of spoke to this. And there was this idea that if you're of a place, the river maybe you have a deep connection to this river and that's sort of going out of sight. So maybe you follow that river for a bit because it's, you know, you're one, you know this river, it's relational to you in some way. It provides for you, it causes distress, it may be a source of deep meaning as well as the support, the life support that a river can offer. So you may follow this river and find some some area may stay there for a while build up a connection to that land maybe your your descendants will follow the river further or maybe you'll keep following that river to see where you know your river goes or what's around the bend of your river so it was the sort of I, the idea posed was that it wasn't wasn't a fleeing or an escaping but rather a a continuation of connection with the land like an extending connection exactly. rather than a disconnection exactly okay so the there is more land over there right we know this land we love this land etc it's the same land over there let's sort of see what's right so what's it's just that, marginal what's on that land perhaps i was looking at it too quickly obviously people didn't go from africa to europe in one generation mm. that wasn't the case they would have been marginally moving every single time i also think about like the maori people that went to new zealand i wonder if that's just a connection of well we're we're the ocean 
right? We are connected to this ocean and this land is connected to this ocean. So us completely displacing ourselves and going to this new island is actually just a connection to the ocean. Mm. We're looking at the same ocean. So we are still connected in that way. That's an interesting way of looking at it. When do you think that was lost with agriculture? What, that that wandering? Well, the connection to the place, because I don't really know what it feels like, to be honest. I don't even feel particularly connected to an idea of a a country. And I guess previously I may have looked at that as a positive aspect of myself. I don't have any nationalism. Mm. But it's also, if we look at it through that particular paradigm, it's a negative in the sense that I have no connection to any place. Mm. I don't feel, honestly... I don't feel connected to any... If there was land with no people, if there was land with no concept of of country, I would really have very, very minimal connection. So I don't know what it feels like. In the same way, I didn't grow up with a dad. I don't really know what it feels like to have a dad. I don't have a sense of loss for not having a dad. So I don't have a sense of loss for not having a connection to land. And I know in your book that I'm reading at the moment, the Loktar people when Liché is thinking about, well, why are these people acting like this? Well, it's because they're not at home, mm. because they're not, they're not living in a place where their ancestors have died. What do you think that feels like? Because I can't imagine you have that feeling. We've both grown up in, in Australia, a modern Western country. No, no, we're, not, we're not even from, we weren't even from this place. I wasn't even born in this place. How do you suppose it feels? Do you think that you're slowly building a connection to your to the place? Uh, I I'm trying to uh, build a connection to the, I guess this place that I live on and interact with and get some of my food from, etc. But I think that feeling of not having a place, of not being connected to the land, not being at home, uh, is the feeling of taker culture. So it's just the the baseline background noise that yep. we just put up with all the time. We're not even, I don't think, aware of it remotely. Okay. That makes sense. Makes total sense. But yeah. I think that... Because once, let's say you're one of the first agriculturalists, you may have been pressured into it by other agriculturalists or for whatever circumstance... You are one of the first generations of farmers, sedentary farmers. This land that was once not yours, but you were the land. You were a part of the land. You looked after it just the same as, let's say, the kangaroo look after it in their own way and the same way that the river looks after the land in its own way. You were just part of... The people looked after the land in their own way and were a part of it. If you go from from that and that, the ability to move through the land as the seasons change to, I guess, respond to what it needs from you and the land respond to what you need from it, you sort of embark upon like a desecration and a battle. I was about to say that. I would say that you sort of become the enemy of... You don't become the enemy of nature, but nature becomes your enemy because you're constantly fighting against it in order to maintain your agrarian society. You're fighting against vermin and birds. and You're fighting against... Yeah, anything that... Natural disasters. Literally everything that is a, a feature of the natural world, you are fighting against all of the time. 
But then also, if this is a land that, let's say, your people or your ancestors tended to and looked after and maybe respected at a, on a different level, and now you're the person cutting the trees down, tilling the earth, hunting off animals that you don't need to eat, but you sim- they, they are eating your food. If you go from, you know, that other, the lever people to one of, to this new type of person, that's a, a fundamental disturbance of your sense of home, if you will. It is no longer home. It is this, essentially this battleground, this struggle. And that comes back to a question that we asked earlier is why anyone would want to start this agrarian lifestyle? I still think about it. I haven't finished Ishmael. Mm. I feel like it's getting on the cusp of it in the sense that that idea of being an amnesiac, having amnesia about what life was like previously is a fundamental Mm. feature for how you're actually able to perpetrate this through time. Mm. I just wonder about those first couple of generations of the taker culture, the first couple of agriculturalists, maybe everywhere, because it didn't just appear in the Fertile Crescent, it appeared elsewhere. Yeah. Why why was it that it took over everywhere? What what was a fundamental feature of that that even though it represented a lifestyle probably that was worse, a lifestyle that was less happy because you weren't connected to the place anymore. It was now your enemy. You've gone from your ancestors really being one with the environment that they lived in to you now disconnecting from them and fighting against the environment they were one with. How do you keep that going? And how is it that, let's say in, let's just say three places, if it happened in three places, what was a common feature that allowed all of those three places to essentially justify their new way of living, even though it was worse. I just can't. I can't put those two things together in my head. Um, it could be something along the lines of um, population growth. I guess with with a agrarian lifestyle, you do have the opportunity to produce more food um, and to. I guess the store food as well, uh, which may result in more children surviving. So you think it was based on an urge to increase population or do you think that... Oh, we, so the, the the initial reason why it came up as opposed to why it, well, ex- not, why it spread. Not necessarily the initial reason. You can sort of understand the initial reason. And even in Ishmael, they talk about the fact that there are lever cultures that may be partially agrarian. Mm. I guess my question is the fully, the fully agricultural, right, this idea of let's move into full agricultural, mm. enemy of the environment, animal husbandry, really dense. Do you think that was... Do you think that people consciously said, well, this is suffering, but what we get for this suffering is some sort of payoff? Or it just happened so gradually that by the time they got to the point where they were really enemies of the enemies of nature, living with animal husbandry and really in high density because of a population explosion that happened as a result, it was already too late. They were in the same way in our modern culture, if you get a big mortgage, you get married, yeah. you have children, you're just sort of stuck. You can't just leave that lifestyle. Do you think that's what it was, that it just sort of crept up on them? Somehow wheat wheat snuck in mm. and over a couple of generations managed to just catch us. Yep. 
Uh, I think that could be a part of it. Okay. Is, as you mentioned, that cultural amnesia. Perhaps after a few generations of the agrarian lifestyle, people forgot what it was like. Uh, even the generation before, let alone two or three generations ago when people have this connection to the land that is now under under agriculture or being tilled or forests getting cut down, etc. But I think a really important part of it is this idea of a very stratified hierarchy that is only present in agrarian cultures. So let's say, and I think this also speaks to the spread of agriculture, there's some speculation um, that I've heard from Daniel Vitalis that the the Gebekli Tepe site, which is, as we know, the first sort of monolithic structure, mega structure, um, <clears throat> uh, the the first, I guess, uh, sites of wheat cultivation are quite close by. So there's this idea that a priest class that maybe rose to some form of power within the tribe or the lever tribe um, basically began the enslavement of nearby tribes in order to build this structure. But if you have lots of people in one place for a longer period of time, hunting and foraging isn't workable. That's why these people were nomadic. Um, as you move from area to area, letting each site sort of regenerate and redevelop, etc. So in order to feed this workforce, food needed to be produced on site in the area. So potentially that is an origin of agriculture. So then if you have this stratified culture where there are a few people that are receiving most of the benefits of the the culture so that might be the priest class eventually sort of the royalty even the warrior class etc they would be a rung or multiple rungs higher than the people actually doing the farming but so you're you're saying that agriculture emerged as a result of stratification and not necessarily as the the driver or the initial inception of agri- of of that that stratification so I, so strat I would say the stratification to that ext- so there are hierarchical lever cultures. Yeah. Um, this woman, Lisa Fenton, I met in the UK. She teaches bushcraft, etc. Um, she read a paper where often in areas where food acquisition was very difficult, so often like polar extremes or climate extremes, people who got the food for in that period did hold more power. What did, what did power mean within that context? I'm unsure. Okay. It, it might mean more favours, more respect, might mean... <clears throat> more BJs. More BJs, um, maybe a greater proportion of the food, something like that. Um, so there is a level of... There may, in s- certain cultures, there would definitely have been a level of hierarchy, but this s- stratification where, you know, the person you never, ever see or meet or even knows your name is receiving the majority of the work that you put the, or the, the products of your labor mm. and has absolute power to end your life or 
do anything they want with you and your land, that is a uniquely agricultural level of hierarchy. I'm just thinking back to that specific story with that priest class that emerged. I tend to associate social stratification or stratification on a corporate level with the size of it. Mm. So this comes back to Dunbar's number. I think this comes up in Sex at Dawn. I'm not entirely sure, but there are companies that essentially acknowledge Dunbar's number. And then when... uh, So Dunbar's number for humans is around 150, if Mm -hmm. I remember correctly. If they have a plant or an office or something like that, as soon as the number goes above 150, instead of natural stratification emerging, they just open a new site and Mm. they split it in half. Because according to research, that's what primates do. that's That's what ancient humans did was that as soon as population size reached a certain number, Dunbar's number, they would then split. It would become fractious. They would split into two bands of a smaller number. So the idea being that within that tribe, you have a you have a strong connection with each person. And you're able to maintain that strong connection without it becoming fractious and without the, the need for hierarchy. Mm. To me, I associate hierarchy as a technology for managing people greater than Dunbar's number. Mm. I don't know if that's accurate, But that's been Mm. my assessment of it in the sense that, for example, Australia with 20 million people, there's no way. I mean, I I barely know anyone in Perth. What's the size of a congregation of humans where I can know everybody? It's probably Dunbar's number. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. 150 people seems about right. So as soon as we go higher than that, what's the technology that we can use in order to manage people? What's a technology that allows me to not maintain strong connections with people but still enable me to get productivity out of them? Sure. A hierarchy would be that particular thing, the technology mm-hmm. being uh, uh, an imagined order where this person has, quote-unquote, power, this thing that you imagine. They have the ability to tell other people to end your life, to take your things, that sort of thing, and somehow we accept that. So to me, I always saw it as a technology. And if we say that that technology emerged before agriculture, that would make sense to me. And if you said that technology emerged as a result of agriculture and the increase of population, that would also make sense mm. to me. So and it's really it, fascinating, this It whole may question. have been both, like, because there are cases of, it, let's say, in a predominantly lever continent, small pockets of agriculture or gardening, let's say, Um, even some small civilizations, most of which eventually burnt out. I mean, there's reports of, you know, the first Portuguese explorers in Brazil um, when they first arrived, seeing cities of, you know, thousands of people along the banks of the rivers. When they returned 30 years later or whatnot, those cities were abandoned and already reclaimed by the jungle. Wow. Potentially because of smallpox that those first Portuguese brought, etc. But, yeah, there's these sort... You know, so civilization did pop up independently. Um, And it sort of leads me... if, If we're going on this Dunbar's number idea, if, as you said, maybe a tribe gets to 150 people or a clan and they should split, let's say there's like an abundance of food that allows a group of peoples that normally would be regulated by environmental factors. There's like a 
feast situation. Potentially, agents within that group of people determine we shouldn't split, we should stay together and stronger for whatever reason. Um, Could be an anomaly of that person's thinking compared to the rest of the people in their culture or it may be something within their culture that facilitates that single group to start leading more than 150 people and that may be the origins of a more sedentary or a more hierarchical situation. It's fascinating because it seems to be almost deterministic Mm. in the sense that agriculture, and not just agriculture, but these huge uh, agglomerations of people in cities with animal husbandry and agriculture seem to emerge independently across the world with no connection. So you wonder if... If it is deterministic, but along different paths and different cultural trends as well, so but they seem to have manifested in a similar way in the sure, sense that it's sure. hierarchical, agrarian, <clears throat> and animal husbandry. Mm. Is Set- it sedentary? Sedentary. Mm. Is it that if you leave, if you leave humans alone for long enough, that's just bound to happen? Yeah. Is there some? I some... think I think for certain groups, yes. Okay. And th- and th- so this is the thing for me. I'm not. I don't hate take a culture i do yeah sure (laughs) um it's not it's not this wrong thing that's Mm. happened because it 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 was i I, an inevitability i mean it happened so it had to have happened can't can't have been any other way um and this is where i think the idea of rewilding comes in is it's rewilding it's not uncivilizing. Ah, it's a good it's, distinction. It's um, what elements of that can we reintegrate on a personal level and then for some, obviously, it's more how can we spread this because rewilding isn't just about the health of people. It's about the, the ecosystem, it's the land, it's about the planet. It's about so many things beyond the individual that generally take a culture has left behind and that may be an intact community or a good home environment an idea of home it's also maybe been left behind uh respect for non-human beings even respect for things that we don't define as living those kinds of other maybe wider reaching things are potentially far further end goals of rewilding but the key is that it's it's about doing what I guess the person who is interested in it can now. All right. I think that's a good note to end it on. I definitely want to explore that concept of sort of the origin of taker culture with you more because mm. I don't think it's been completely discovered and I can't necessarily vocalise even how I believe that it came into into being. Let's watch the end of that Egypt documentary because mm. I feel like that has some clues yep. as to what happened because that's a really big mystery what happened there. Because this, yeah. this is what I can think and talk for a long time about the effects of Taker Culture and how it's happened. Right. But the origins of it, that's just baffling. It it's, is. It's, it's so interesting. And people say, oh, it's the natural progression. Sure, it was, but like... Why? Right. It's not, you know, God didn't say, I mean, I mean, Genesis story is God. God, God, God told us. Leave the, the God garden. said don't 
God said don't eat it. Yeah. God said not don't, to do it. Don't eat the apple. Adam Otherwise you're gonna have to labor off the sweat of your brow. And just, yeah, so maybe it was God. But um It was the devil. No, it was the devil. Wasn't it the devil, the snake that tempted Eve to eat eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Anyway, let's leave it there. Good conversation, Barnaby Nichols. Always a good time. Let's go deeper next time. See you next time on Thought Club. Thanks. No, that's good. That's the end of episode three with Barnaby. What do you reckon? I really enjoyed that one. As always, if you have any feedback about the podcast or just want to get in touch with me, I'm available at percy at percygrunwald.com or as at percygrunwald on Twitter and other socials. Thanks a lot for listening and I'll speak at you next time. Go to bed.